Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, here, of course, with my friend Paul Prescott. Paul, what's going on? Not much. Glad to be doing another episode, the best part of my week, as always. Likewise, likewise. Um, I don't know if any of you watching uh, noticed we were supposed to have Eileen Jones, Jacobin's film critic, on today to talk about uh, the uses and abuses of movies and art as propaganda. Unfortunately, she had to reschedule, but the good news is we are having on Luke Savage, who of course is a Jacobin staff writer. He'll be joining us in actually just a few minutes to talk about liberals and why they love losing. And um, I was just saying earlier, we've been trying to get Luke on uh, for a while now, so it's actually really fortuitous that he was able to do this and... um, I think it's going to be a great talk. Yeah, he's also a a movie buff, so maybe we can um, stick in some movie questions while we're at it. Exactly. Yeah, we'll uh, definitely grill him on what he thought about the new Netflix movie, He's All That. So stay tuned for that. (laughs) Right. Well, we've all been waiting (laughs) Um, for it. Yeah. Um, in all seriousness, we will have Eileen Jones back on uh, at, at some point next month. Uh, so if you are you know, ready to talk about movies, um, again, you might hear some of it with Luke, but also please catch Eileen when we have her on later this month, or I'm sorry, it's the end of August. So next month. Um, so I also wanted to, before we bring Luke on, quickly mention that next week we are moving our show to air at 3 p.m. Eastern. So you will now have to catch the Jacobin show and all of us at 3 p.m. But you definitely don't want to miss next week because it's going to be a very special episode with the one and only Noam Chomsky. And if you're looking at the graphic, that's right. There might be a special host who you haven't seen in a while. So just saying, you're not going to want to miss that. Again, that's starting next week. We're going to be broadcasting live at 3 p.m. Eastern. And just to clear up any confusion, because I know there have been a few questions, um, the live streams will be, you know, free, open to all while they're streaming live. If you are a Jacobin YouTube member, you'll be able to access the archive of the live stream um, after it airs, you know, in one unedited chunk without ads. Um, but I also want to mention if you're not a Jacobin member um, and you, you know, can't or don't feel like forking over the $5 a month, um, we totally get it. Uh, and actually, you still have access to basically 100% of our content and all of our shows. Uh, just you'll be able to access it via clips uh, with ads. So just wanted to put that out there. Um, all right. Well, I think on that note, um, Paul, do you have do you have any opening thoughts before we bring Luke on? Do I? Well, I do have a lot. Um, yeah. Your well, own opinion on he's all that. <laughs> right. Well, our, we should make a movie. Uh, liberals are all that or are yeah. not are not all that. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm just really curious to hear Luke, but it is frustrating um, just watching, you know, like this, this constant hysterical stuff that liberal establishment is, is always putting out there about, you know, the end of democracy, the end of this, the end of that. And then like matching that with their actions, which are totally not up to the task of the rhetoric that they're, that they're putting out there. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm just interested to see where that goes and what Luke has to say. And I mm-hmm. think 
we were almost at this point where almost the best we were going to get out of Biden, I feel like, feel like has happened already. Um, those early stimulus bill, I mean, what he did with Afghanistan. So I'm just kind of curious to say where 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 does liberalism go from here? I'm surprised you didn't see, say NLRB appointments, but the other stuff you mentioned is good, too. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but, I mean, that happened early. You know, I think, yeah, yeah like he's kind of um, he's peaked a little early, I feel like. I mean, hopefully I'm wrong, but um, it, it does beg the question, like, you know, where does liberalism go from here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think on that note, um, why don't we just get right to Luke? Uh, Luke Savage, as I think you all know, is a staff writer at Jacobin, a contributor to The Atlantic, uh, The Guardian, and other publications. And Luke, you have been a pretty, I think it's fair to say, prolific uh, critic of liberalism, I think, especially at the tail end of the Trump era, and then, of course, uh, all the way into now. And I guess just to start off, I want to ask you a pretty basic question, because I feel like when conservatives talk about liberalism or liberals, they're referring to basically anybody from the Democrats all the way to the Bolsheviks, right? And I think, you know, when leftists talk about liberals, we obviously mean something a little bit different. But I think even sometimes when we invoke liberalism, it's not always clear. Um, I think sometimes when leftists say liberal, they really mean uh, anybody less radical than me. Sometimes they mean anybody I don't like. So just to kind of kick off, um, before we get into the meat of your uh, Atlantic pieces and your other writing, uh offer us a working definition of liberals uh or liberalism what do you what do you, when you criticize <laughs> liberals what do you, what exactly are you getting at wow well uh first of all thanks for having me uh first time long time um and i'm glad you added that caveat because i was going to just reply how much time have you got um but uh when i criticize liberals uh i i suppose uh predominantly what i'm talking about uh what i'm referring to is the strand, I mean, you know, generalizing here a bit, but the strand of liberalism that's been embraced by the Democratic Party, uh, I suppose, going back to the late 1970s to some extent, but really kind of hungrily embraced by Democrats uh, beginning in the Clinton era. Um, And that's a a type of liberalism uh, that is much more uh, uh, zealous for kind of markets, Politically speaking, in terms of its strategic calculations, it is much more, uh, you know, it's it's it embraces triangulation um, quite quite willingly um, and quite hungrily. Uh, it's also a type of liberalism uh, that I think is associated with attempts to court particular demographics uh, at the exclusion of others. So um, there's a great Jacobin piece from some years ago by Lily Geismer called Atari Democrats, where she talked about the realignment of the Democratic Party. Um, it's something a lot of people have written about, obviously. Um, it's kind of uh, refashioning as a party of uh, Silicon Valley and of Wall Street and of a particular uh, kind of upper crust and, and heavily suburban uh, constituency. And obviously you get a, a political shift uh, to the right, uh, alongside, uh, those things. So that would be a kind of uh, very brief working definition for our purposes. 
So let's now dive into some of the, I guess, characteristics uh, that that you've been looking at in the Atlantic recently. So something that Paul had actually alluded to a couple minutes ago, and I think, you know, is really interesting about your writing on liberalism and kind of like the state of liberals in the US, like during Trump, and of course, through to now, is uh, you identify that liberals do this thing where uh, oftentimes they are, oftentimes they'll use this very, like, kind of um, emergency state, like high pitched rhetoric, where it's like, we're basically on the edge of societal collapse and descent into fascism, like we've never seen before. There's very, very elevated rhetoric, but at the same time, they act totally powerless, right? So I want to read a quote from one of your Atlantic pieces. You write, Liberalism in the Trump era has become a kind of strange pantomime act in which elite politicians deploy the rhetoric of imminent threats and national emergency only to behave like hapless passengers trapped aboard a sinking ship. Um, I think that's really well put. And I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that tension. Why do they behave this way? And like, what explains this contradiction? There, there are a number of ways to come at this. I mean, I think that type of rhetoric, uh, the kind of uh, rhetoric of emergency, uh, that sort of thing, I mean, that really went into overdrive in, in 2015. It went into overdrive before Donald Trump was elected, kind of with his uh, ascent. Although, to a certain extent, it really is just a reflection of the way the media ecosystem and more broadly the political ecosystem in the United States has, has come to work. I mean, beginning in the 90s with kind of Roger Ailes and Fox News, there was this discovery um, that instead of courting a mass market, uh, you could actually have a sustainable uh, media business model uh, in courting a niche ideological market and kind of stoking it with, you know, emotionally potent oversimplification and and all the rest of it. Uh, Eventually, liberals discovered this. MSNBC, which of course, originally was not a liberal network. It, it, you know, it was kind of more like a CNN or, or something like that. And and then, you know, through various uh, sort of awkward Tim and Eric, Keith Olbermann rants, where he keeps weirdly turning to a different camera that's there for some reason and saying, how dare you, sir? Uh, MSNBC uh, figured out that you could do this from kind of the liberal uh, side as well. And of course, there are other factors at play here. But uh, within that ecosystem, there is a a really direct interest. There's a, a market incentive for uh, big media oligopolies to use the rhetoric of emergency constantly. I mean, it's it's one reason people people understand this on the Republican side, right? Uh, you know, Republicans, Fox News uh, in particular, has been describing the most vanilla liberal politicians. You know, of you know, J- Joe Lieberman is Friedrich Engels to them, right? It's, 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 it's crazy. And I think, um, you know, on the liberal side, you've very much seen that uh, as well. Now, of course, um, there also is, you know, the American democracy in a kind of small D sense is genuinely under threat. Majority rule in the United States, which has always been a very fraught concept, um, you know, is is under a very active assault, particularly this year uh, from the Republican Party, uh, which took, you know, took the lesson from the 2020 presidential election, uh, essentially that, you know, elections that Republicans don't win are inherently illegitimate and are pursuing uh, a strategy, particularly at the state level, where there have been hundreds of these bills rolled out, 
um, you know, to restrict voting rights, uh, you know, voter suppression bills, gerrymandering. There's one, I believe it was in Arizona, uh, and I don't think it has uh, passed, at least not yet, but the uh, that, that bill uh, would give the legislature, the state legislature, the power to overturn a secretary of state certification of electoral results. Um, uh, in other, in other words, if, uh, if there's a, a democratic victory in that state in a presidential election, and then there's a Republican, uh, controlled legislature, uh, they could simply overturn the results, which is, uh, as far as I know, unprecedented. Although I, I could be wrong about that. There's a long history of, of, uh, counter majoritarianism, uh, uh, and uh, and and just outright voter suppression um, in American history, but so you know these two things can be very difficult to extricate from one another. On the one hand, there's a strong incentive uh, for the Democratic leadership class and its media surrogates to speak a certain way uh, about you know the the right and the conservative movement and the Republican Party. Um, and, you know, even down to kind of uh, more granular things like kind of fundraising, right? Uh, anyone who's written fundraising emails uh, before uh, themselves knows that you don't, you know, you're not going to get, you're not going to harvest donations if you use kind of a language of moderation. That's not how uh, modern fundraising works, particularly when it comes to political campaigns. Um, so there's there are market incentives for this kind of stuff. But then uh, on the flip side, there is a genuine threat from the right to American democracy, um, to and you know democracy in a very basic kind of small d sense. As for the contradiction in what uh, you know Democrats say versus what they do, I think uh, that's a little more straightforward. I, I think the catalyst to the piece you just quoted that I did in the Atlantic, uh, I suppose I think that was in October of 2020 was a press conference that Nancy Pelosi gave. And this was um, this was around the time of the Amy Coney Barrett appointment uh, when Democrats were uh, not attempting at all to hold up this, uh, you know, the appointment of this judge, which if the tables were turned and there was a, uh, you know, a, a Democratic administration who was going to do the same thing in those circumstances, you can you can bet that the Republicans would have done everything they could to obstruct um, that nomination. But furthermore, this was back when Donald Trump, you know, as we're a few weeks before the election at that point, and Donald Trump was uh, refusing to say whether he would accept, you know, election results, uh, you know, in, in the event he was defeated. And Pelosi began her press conference by saying something like, you know, Mr. Trump, Mr. President, you know, we're not in North Korea. This is America. You can't do this. And then uh, I think a few minutes later, she was asked, um, you know, if, uh, you know, if they were going to, if the Democrats were planning to shut down uh, the government to hold up Amy Coney Barrett's nomination. Um, and she said, no, obviously. And she had this, if I'm remembering rightly, this completely cop out uh, reasoning, which was that uh, federal workers need to get, need to get their checks, something like that. Obviously that's not the reason. Um, and so, you know, here you have the, the contradiction, uh, you know, uh, illustrated quite elegantly. Uh, on the one hand, we're told that, you know, the Fourth Reich is coming to America, basically. And then on the other hand, um, you know, the, the Democratic Party is still kind of cleaving to, uh, you know, all the norms around kind of, uh, you know, how Congress is supposed to function, all this kind of etiquette and, and you know, politeness and 
respect for you know bipartisanship and things like that and and that's a through line that you can see um you know running through the Trump era really where there's that that type of rhetoric on the one hand and then on the other Democrats are approving Donald Trump's you know judicial nominees they are uh, approving his you know fast tracking in some cases his military budgets they're willing to vote to give an administration he leads new spying powers um you know and so in in so uh, in terms of how I would explain that contradiction i really just think that uh, the democratic party is a contradictory formation it's one uh which represents the ostensibly kind of liberal reform minded progressive side of the american political spectrum but uh, and and has many voters in its coalition who indeed do kind of have um, those values and values, I think, in many cases, much closer to a Bernie Sanders or at least an Elizabeth Warren uh, than than a Joe Biden or a Chuck Schumer or a Nancy Pelosi. But on the other hand, the Democratic Party, you know, is uh, in, in many ways an extension of Wall Street, an extension of the liberal wing of American capital. And as such, it is it is completely wedded to certain norms of behavior and there are, um, you know, political behavior and, and etiquette and, and otherwise. Um, but also, uh, it's room to maneuver um, and its willingness to move things in, a, in you know, a particular direction, in a leftward direction, uh, is severely constrained by the, you know, the donors it embraces and, and by the kind of model that its leadership class um, embraces. So as a result, you get this contradiction where on the one hand, uh, you know, uh, the barbarians are at the gates and, you know, fascism has to be stopped uh, at all costs. And on the other hand, um, you know, the, the solution to that is always just more, uh, it's always just another round of, of centrism. And just to follow up, and this might, I apologize, but this is kind of a repetitive question, but what's so puzzling to me is like, you know, not willing to use power even for their own narrow self-interest. So of course we know why they're not going to use power to pass Medicare for all because they don't want to, but even something like, you know, holding on to power or stopping voter suppression because they know that's going to hurt their electoral chances. You know, you would think, if anything, they would understand the concept of wanting to hold on to power. So what, I mean, what kind of explains something so clearly in their self-interest still not able and willing to use power to do that? Well, the voting rights example is is really interesting because if you look at the way that, um, you know, the kind of liberal media ecosystem, you know, has, has, has covered voting rights, whether we're talking about MSNBC, uh, you know, Chris Hayes actually uh, cited a piece that I that I wrote on voting rights uh, that I wrote at The Atlantic on on his show, uh, which is not the kind of thing that happens every day. Uh, Ari Berman over at Mother Jones, who's a, a really excellent reporter, uh, you know, uh, longstanding reporter on issues around uh voting rights and democracy. He's, he's written extensively about this and, and the liberal media ecosystem, um, you know, to its credit has, uh, I think treated the issue quite seriously. Um, and, you know, as a result, they've gotten some noises from particular, uh, democratic politicians around this stuff. Um, they have not gotten, uh, a lot of action. And here, I think, you know, the, the explanation is, uh, perhaps complicated. There are, I think, different factors at play, but I really think the the simplest and most straightforward explanation here is that Joe Biden in particular, you know, as those of us on the left, uh, we, we always said that he would behave like this. Uh, the best uh, 
you know, the, the, the best way to predict a politician's behavior is to look at their record. And Joe Biden had almost 50 years of political history for us to look at. And, you know, as uh, my colleague Bronco Marketich, who I, who I know has been on this show before, uh, wrote in his excellent book, Yesterday's Man, uh, Joe Biden really does believe very deeply, you know, he's a creature of the Beltway. He's a creature of its norms and its etiquette. Um, and he and I think many of the people around him, some of whom, uh, you know, kind of have their roots in, in the Obama-Biden administration, they really do believe, uh, and this it sounds silly to say out loud and it will be self-evident to, I suspect, every person watching and to the two of you why this is ridiculous, but they really do believe um, and have said as much that the that voters will reward them for passing bipartisan legislation and for uh, kind of tempering down uh, partisan divisions and, and things like that. Um, they see this as an, as, as in their self-interest. And if you look at the rhetoric uh, coming out of people like Joe Manchin, who, of course, has been at the center of the uh, democratic reform and, and voting rights uh, controversies because of his unwillingness uh, to discuss smashing the filibuster uh, and things like that, um, you know, it's all about how we need, you know, we need a middle path. Voting rights cannot be a partisan issue, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the people who say that stuff, frankly, really do believe in it. Um, they they really believe that that's true. And of course, when one party is actively working to suppress the rights of voters, um, particularly African-American voters, um, voting rights very much is a partisan issue. And uh, I think that that is getting lost uh, in the, uh, you know, in the same old embrace, the same old kind of uh, quintessentially Joe Biden embrace of, you know, bipartisanship for its own sake as an end in itself and as something that, uh, you know, Biden and the people around him rather chaotically believe is going to yield them uh, some kind of electoral advantage in the midterms, which I think is is ludicrous. And what's so frustrating about that is like that idea of if we pass bipartisan legislation, we'll get rewarded is that there's a version of that that I think we could agree with. And, you know, the Bernie approach of if we pass overwhelmingly popular universal programs that ordinary Republicans, moderates would like, you'll be rewarded. But of course, that's not the version of this that they're talking about. They're talking about this much more narrow sense of of that. That's right. I mean, bi- bipartisanship, you know, it's, it's you know, the, it, there's, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of fudging of kind of there's a lot of fudging of words and what they mean around uh, to put it to put it bluntly around bipartisanship because uh, you know people like Manchin when they you know invoke this concept uh, they're they're always kind of the the insinuation is always the implication is always that uh, somehow they're talking about doing things that are overwhelmingly popular and I think that's I think you find that's very rarely the case when when uh, when people who are fond of bipartisanship in the sense that it's, you know, generally invoked, uh, when they, when they cite it, what they're talking about is legislation that's popular within the political class. You know, I mean, healthcare is a perfect example of that to, to step away from voting rights for a second. I mean, uh, you know, Sanders, who is the only candidate to actually run on in a full throated way without equivocation on Medicare for all, during the primaries was, you know, bludgeoned from all sides um, by the people who, uh, you know, say we need moderation, compromise, bipartisanship, etc. 
Um, and I know that, you know, uh, people will say that the, uh, you know, polling around Medicare for all is, you know, conflicted or that, you know, people don't understand what they're voting for. But you can go through years of polling that show there is majority support. I mean, and within if we're just talking about the Democratic Party and, and you know, registered Democrats, I mean, the support is absolutely overwhelming in some cases as high as 90 percent. Um, in fact, I'd, I'd go so far as to say that I think a lot of uh a lot of rank and file Democrats probably uh, thought that most uh, most candidates running in the primary supported some version of of universal health care, you know, um, uh, and yet you know it you know Medicare for all uh, hardly has a hearing uh, at all within the Democratic Party. So uh, you know when we when when moderates so called moderates talk about what's popular and what's non controversial. Uh, I think usually what they're talking about is things that are popular and non-controversial within the political class, not things that are popular and controversial or and and uh, uh, non-controversial uh, within the electorate at large. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely true, and actually, like, leads really well into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is that um, on this kind of subject of. Uh, you know, political class moderates kind of assuming when they say bipartisanship, they're really referring to a very narrow set of interests. Something that, you know, we've talked about on the show and that I think has been coming up lately is that a lot of Biden's biggest media boosters who, you know, are what we might call liberals have sort of turned on him swiftly after his decision to fully withdraw troops from Afghanistan. Right. Um, I believe you've written about this for, for Jacobin. I know that Branko has, um, and I guess this is kind of a broad question, but I, I'm sort of wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, how foreign intervention is kind of a central tenet of the liberal project um, and, and why it why I, I mean, just to like, you know, put it put it out there. Like I was a little surprised when I saw kind of these media commentators. Um, I, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was a little surprised when I saw these media commentators just suddenly rushing to beat the war drums again after 20 failed years. Um, And, you know, on the subject of liberals liking to lose, at first I was like, well, like you you just can't bear the thought of losing. You want to keep going. But maybe it's that they want to lose for another 20 more years. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Or I I think I saw someone remark that um, that, you know, they they want to they want to lose the war, but they want to somehow win the withdrawal. So they want to win while losing. That's I mean, perfect. that does yeah. <laughs> very much seem to be kind of the, mm. the atmosphere, right? Profound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so sorry. I, I, I didn't quite pick up on the, on, oh, yeah. the, on the question. Yeah. Sorry. That was a little convoluted. I think the main question for you was, can you talk a little bit about how um, foreign intervention has kind of become a cornerstone of the liberal project in, in the U S at least? Wow. Well, um, I mean, as long as we're talking about bipartisanship, I mean, mm-hmm. I think this is a really good example of it. Um, there is, I mean, it's cl- within within the political class, although it's you know changed, I think, somewhat recently with the um, you know there's a, there's a larger chorus of of dissent uh, you know around this than than there has been arguably since the 1960s or 70s. In Congress, because of uh, because a few of these uh, more of these left wing uh, because a few more uh, left wing lawmakers have been elected, but I mean the the consensus around I mean foreign policy I, there's probably you know that in the military budget and of course the two are closely interrelated. 
I don't think there's anything in which there's such uniformity within the political class and within the uh, within the within the media uh, as well. Um, you know, uh, Adam Johnson, the media critic Adam Johnson, has been curating uh, these really, I mean, truly remarkable clips throughout the past uh, couple of weeks. Uh, you know, where you see these. Uh, these completely, uh, ostensibly completely neutral foreign uh, correspondents for major networks talking in the most utterly, you know, uh, nakedly partisan way about, uh, I can't remember who it was who said that, uh, you know, some some foreign correspondent, I believe for NBC, uh, talking about how this was the greatest defeat for Western values in decades or something like that. Um, and, you know, this is one area uh, where I think the uh, American elite is is quite fiercely ideological. I think that there is a belief in, you know, I, people like myself, you know, have to be careful in, in terms of, uh, you know, it's, it's it can be possible, it can be too, too convenient, I think, sometimes too seductive to simply dismiss liberals in particular as kind of, um, uh, you know, cold or, or diffident technocrats or something like that. Um, and, and when it comes to things like foreign intervention, I think there is a genuine ideological zeal. I think Biden's own career is a, is a testament to that. I mean, you saw how after 9-11, where, of course, there was, um, you know, really an unprecedented uniformity from uh, the leaderships of, of both parties um, around around the war on terror, which didn't really start to change until, you know, 2004, 2005, 2006. Um, you saw how there was a real symbiosis in, in the way that conservatives and, 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 and liberals talked about uh, foreign intervention. You know, liberals uh, were, were all too happy to kind of sign on to the kind of core tenets of the war on terror, um, but they tended to talk about the project uh, in more, you know, using more kind of liberal, in more liberal terms, you, you know, kind of humanitarianism, uh, spreading democracy, things like that. Um, and there was a convergence of liberals and and neocons uh, on those things, which, you know, after a while, uh, the, you know, in certain cases anyway, I think those two uh you know, liberals and neocons often became quite indistinguishable in the in the mid two thousands. Um, but so for I mean, foreign intervention and support for the, uh, you know, the American Empire is something that uh, you know there's there's tremendous uniformity around within the political class and within the media class, and there has been some time, and and that's and and you can really see that. Uh, you know, in the wake of the Af- Afghanistan withdrawal, because, you know, for for the better part of, well, for more than a year now, um, liberal audiences have been served the narrative that Joe Biden is, you know, the most progressive president in history. He's, uh, you know, there is one commentator uh, who shall not be named, who, who claimed <laughs> that, uh, you know, kind of left of center commentator who claimed that the, uh, you know, Biden administration was going to represent, uh, I believe it was, the best of the FDR Johnson administrations, the best of Bernie Sanders and the best of Obama, all, all together, all of those things together. Um, so a kind of, you know, New Deal liberalism on steroids, a, a, choo- a choose your own adventure of, of kind of what whatever good things for good, you know, good people um, uh, mm-hmm. come into your head. Right. So that that net narrative has, has existed really since. Biden won won the primaries. There was a, a love of there's been a love affair with Biden that's been 
uh, well, I don't know if it's been unprecedented. Let's say unprecedented since the love affair with Obama in 2008 and 2009. And then that changed suddenly overnight, uh, as uh, Bronco put it, uh, because Biden ended a war. And that tells you quite a lot about the uniformity that exists um, around foreign interventions and um, you know the, the uh, American project abroad, even as liberals and conservatives tend to discuss those things uh, with with you know different emphases and and use slightly different you know uh, terms around them. So so let's also then talk a little bit about the perhaps temporary Biden love affair because um, you know when when I was looking at your articles, something that I was thinking about uh, was that during the Trump administration, the pinnacle of liberalism was Trump derangement syndrome, what people kind of call Trump derangement syndrome, right? Like again, as you were saying, this kind of like extreme um, sort of histrionic rhetoric about, uh, you know, Trump ushering in just a terrible fascist new regime. Uh, And, you know, I I think that we can still see sort of strains of that. Um, I I pulled a couple quotes from a New York Times article. Uh, One of the columnists recently was talking about the uh, Gavin Newsom's recall election, and he wrote... Uh, unless California's Democrats wake up in three weeks' time, a Trumpian provocateur could well be chosen to run one of the nation's bluest states. He's, of course, talking about Larry Elder. Gavin Newsom himself uh, commented in that same article and said, some say, meaning Elder, he's the most Trump of the candidates. I say he's even more extreme than Trump in many respects. So I guess my question for you is, are liberals' brains permanently broken? uh, Or maybe, uh, like, more diplomatic way of of asking the question is how would you characterize liberalism in the post-Trump transitioning to Biden era? Huh. Well, I do, I do think that, uh, I think the Trump era really hardened particular reflexes and kind of solidified particular, uh, reflexes among liberal commentators and, uh, and liberal audiences. So, I mean, I, I think this stuff, um, and for some of the reasons that, that, I mentioned before the kind of incentive structures in the media in particular, uh, you know, th- this sort of stuff is, is going to be, uh, I, mean, I think, I think I, I, unless there's a structural transformation of American liberalism and of kind of the democratic coalition, which, you know, f- for the next few years, at least I'm certainly not holding my breath, you know, all the, the I don't think these reflexes are going to change. And, and if anything, they're probably going to harden further. I mean, that right there, what you just quoted, which I had not seen and is incredibly funny is I mean that is a beginning. I mean it's been a it's been a joke on the left for years as people like George Bush have been kind of normalized and even celebrated. Though they're going to do the same thing with Trump. That right there seems very much to be opening up space for doing exactly that kind of thing. Where first it's going to be that such and such a person uh, is even more extreme than Trump. And you know, ten years from now, I wouldn't be surprised if. You know, we're going to be we're going to learn all about how Donald Trump may have had his flaws. But at the end of the day, he was a patriot who who loved his country and, you know, wanted the best for uh, everyone or, or something like that. Um, but I, I think that uh, to take kind of a longer view of this, um, I think that uh, it goes back, you know, I'm being obviously quite, quite general here. But I think that this this impulse and this and this type of rhetoric uh, really does go back to the the end of of kind of the New Deal Democratic coalition, the rejection of Jesse Jackson and, and the Rainbow Coalition, um, and the the embrace of uh, well the, the Clintonite embrace of neoliberalism, basically. 
Um, you know, that that project has really left the Democrats in a bit of a bind because there are all these things that ostensibly they need to be for and which structurally they're not really willing or, or able to do. Um, and, you know, if you're a Democratic politician, you can't really come out and say, well, uh, I don't, I, we're not doing this stuff because we fundamentally don't believe in it. I mean, every so often, I think it particularly in, in the wake of the two Sanders challenges, 2016 and 2020, they did occasionally say things like that. There was the very revealing moment where Hillary Clinton in 2016, this was, where she called, you know, Medicare for all some theoretical idea that's never, ever going to come to pass. So you do get, you do get a few moments like that. Um, but basically, uh, in the in the face of this ideological retreat, which a lot of uh, a lot of liberal commentators and and pundits and and leaders, I think as well, um, and the liberal intelligentsia broadly, they're they're not really willing to discuss it in those terms. They don't want there to have been an ideological retreat. It's not something they're really willing to concede. And so you have to have something to fill the void. And so I think they, there's a whole kind of um, uh, you know alternate explanation that's that's proffered uh where really uh you know the, the the liberal ontology of politics has really been i think since the 1990s the early 2000s depending on 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 where you date it it's really been well we could have all these nice things but uh if it, you know if it if it wasn't for the right which is you know so dangerous that you absolutely must vote for the democrats you must be an enthusiastic supporter of absolutely whatever the democrats do whether they're in power whether they're out of power if they're in power they you know you have to support them and not criticize them publicly because they need to maintain that power to, to you know mitigate this this looming threat and if they're out of power um you know you have to do the same thing uh so that you can uh you know, eliminate, uh, eliminate the threat and get it out of power. So I think, uh, that's kind of the longer explanation for this is that, uh, there's been this great ideological retreat, uh, on the part of liberals, but that's not something that most of them are willing to concede except in a few select moments. And so there has to be some alternate, you know, explanation, uh, offered to voters. And that's usually the one that they, um, that, that they go with. There's a whole kind of cottage industry, uh, and has been for a long time around blaming Fox News for absolutely everything. You know, obviously Fox News is a, a you know, a, a negative influence to put it mildly in American life, but I don't think it's to blame for absolutely everything um, that's that's wrong in, in American politics. And uh, I, I certainly think it has very little to do with the Democratic Party's own shift to the right, which at times has been very, uh, you know, zealous and, and, uh, and you know, enthusiastic. And of course, there's, they, there's always the excuse of you know these moderate voters who are still Democrats. We can't go too far; they won't be. And it's like, well, maybe these voters have been molded by what you've been doing the last thirty and forty years. I mean, maybe they're responding to the message that there's no alternative, and, that, and this is all you can do. So you've created this problem, and then use it as an excuse to to not get out of the problem. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's right. And, and and also, I mean, that impulse, I should say, uh, you know, really was strengthened uh, after 2010, I think. Uh, I think people were conditioned, liberals, liberal audiences were conditioned very strongly uh, after the midterm wipeout in 2010 uh, to think, well, you know, uh, Democrats, of course, want to do all these great things. They want to pursue a transformational and progressive project, but they can't. And the reason is, 
is because of uh, is is because of the right. That's a much easier psychologically. That's a much easier you know if you if you were signed up for the Obama project in 2008, 2009, and you were excited about it, and then you didn't get, you know, what did you get? Dodd-Frank and um, a, a, you know, a healthcare reform package that had its origins in in the Heritage Foundation. Um, you know, that's, that's not, that's, there's not a lot to celebrate there. It's pretty thin gruel, especially when measured against the rhetoric that Obama was using in 2008 and 2009, uh, during the campaign in, in 2008 in particular. So it's much easier to to say, uh, you know, instead of saying, well, maybe we didn't get this stuff because that's not what Obama wanted. It's not ever what he was about. It's not ever uh, the type of legislative agenda he was trying to pursue. It's much easier to say, oh, well, we can't have nice things because of Fox News right. or Donald Trump. And I know you probably noticed, I have to say for the record, we should never forget that in 2010, what the numbers show is that there was actually a decline in Democrat turnout. There was not this explosion of Republican turnout. Which, you know, I think could support the idea that if Obama would have gone bigger and bolder and really excited the base, they, they could have held on. Um, but again, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. Um, so for my last question, um, you know, it's clear that throughout the 2020 election campaign and up to now, liberals were and still are banking on this return to normal. So first, it's a return to normal from Trump. Now a return to normal after the pandemic. But I think it's clear to us that like there is no returning to this mythical normal. Like even if we even if COVID is eliminated, even if there's a guarantee Trump is not running in 2024, you know, the fundamental contradictions and inequalities in our society are not going away. I think in the future, we're still going to see the growth of the far right and the far left. So how do you think liberals will respond as it becomes more and more clear that there is no going back to normal or maybe it won't be clear to them at all? But how, how are they going to respond as you know, there is this no going back to brunch, going back to normal in the next few years. In terms of how liberal voters respond, I, I'm at least somewhat optimistic. I think it's somewhat plausible that um, there actually will be, uh, you know, that they re- that they really will. I mean, we saw in 2016 and, and in 2020, um, you know, because of Bernie Sanders, two very nearly successful revolts against the Democratic Party leadership, which... We're not anticipated. And, and even after 2016, uh, you know, Sanders was not treated as a serious uh, contender in 2020 by, uh, you know, establishment liberals. And, you know, he came very, very close to winning the Democratic nomination, I think, on on both occasions. So, um, you know, I'm very critical of the Democratic leadership class and of the liberal media and, and of liberal elites. But I, I am... Uh, I think less cynical, uh, perhaps, and uh, of of liberal voters themselves. I think that uh, often, um, you know, they're they're uh, you know conditioned, perhaps, in some of these ways we've been discussing to kind of uh, give Democrats a, a blank check, and and they're taught that that's what's the that's what the constructive thing to do is. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think that it's going to be harder and harder uh, to sustain that in terms of how. Uh, elites themselves will operate. I, I suspect that they will continue along the same path and harden in many of the same things that they're doing now. I think that the current moment is a very strange interregnum period. Um, one thing I think you can say about Biden is in your know, kind of the early Biden era. Um, you know, I think it's it has it has uh, disappointed or or at least failed to fulfill a lot of its kind of uh, stated mandate, a lot of the sort of legislative priorities that it ostensibly has, I, I don't think 
are going to be are going to be realized. I don't think there was ever a serious attempt, for example, to pursue the public option, which was Biden's supposedly uh, Senate. Uh, you know, that was going to that was going to cruise through the Senate, unlike Medicare for all, et cetera. Um, but Bidenism has been very successful, at least for a few months until they until this crack up over Afghanistan. Anyway, it's been very su- successful in albeit somewhat artificially restoring a kind of, you know, um, cultural consensus that does feel very reminiscent of, you know, 2012, say, or something like that, where all of a sudden, um, you know, this is purely anecdotal, and I'm being a little facetious here, but all of a sudden in kind of February, March of, of 2021, it felt like Twitter, political Twitter had gone back to, you know, discourse cycles about, you know whether the the latest Marvel movie was problematic or or whatever. You know it, it felt days. like <laughs> that's right, right. I mean, it felt like the stakes were lower. It was a you know is a real kind of back to brunch moment. Um, and and at the same time, of course, as we've talked about, um, if you were to read kind of highbrow and and middlebrow sort of liberal magazines and things like that, there was this narrative, these you know long long reads about. Uh, the new New deal and 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 all that kind of stuff and and so there was a really kind of i as i say albeit artificial um kind of uh complacency that I think was very uh seductive and which a lot of people were really uh were really keen to embrace that's kind of fractured over Afghanistan, and I suspect as we get closer to the midterms it'll it'll fracture some more um but as to what happens when it does fracture um I think all hell is going to break loose. We'll have to we'll have to see. I I think Trump is absolutely going to run again in 2024. It seems I mean, I would be very surprised if if he didn't and I don't think the Republican Party is even equipped anymore yeah. to be fronted by anyone besides Donald Trump. So when that happens, uh boy, it's it's anyone's guess. It's not going to be pretty. So Luke, I actually have a bonus question for you because we haven't gotten a chance to talk about movies yet. What do you think is a really good movie about American liberalism? Oh boy! Uh, well, Bullworth. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> any any number. I mean, any number of movies uh, that we've done on my podcast. But uh, let me let me tell you about a movie um, that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, ironically, um, the very first episode of my podcast, which originally was a sort of you know, celebratory, but but I suppose looking back critically at, at you know, some of Michael Moore's films, some of which, you know, hold up wonderfully. Um, <laughs> thanks for the thanks for the promo on screen there. But there's a little known Michael Moore film called Slacker Uprising. And, you know, huh. I, I love Michael. I'm not I'm not knocking him here, but that film is is really an incredible document of. Uh, you know, liberalism in 2004, uh, when John Kerry was the Democratic nominee, um, you know, Michael Moore had this whole kind of tour where it's really it was a get out the vote tour for John Kerry. But I don't think he actually could bring himself to endorse John Kerry um, for a few, until a few days before the actual election. So you get these big rallies um, that, you know, have all this rhetoric against the war and, and, and stuff like that. Um, and, but our kind of crypto get out the vote rallies for Democrats. Um, and you know, what Moore was doing, I think was, uh, you know, was well-intentioned and obviously he, he was hoping to make a movie about how he helped get, uh, John Kerry elected, which, you know, isn't the movie he was able to make. So I don't think the movie ended up being in theaters, but that, I mean, that film, which, you know, I think 
a, I mean, we've done it. We've done two episodes of it on my <laughs> podcast. Um, as I said, it's very near and dear to my heart. Um, but I think that film really, really sums up a lot of the contradictions we've been talking about. Where on the one hand, uh, you know, there's there's a kind of uh, rhetoric, at least, of, of radicalism, and and in you know, in Moore's case, uh, I think some genuine commitment to it as well. But then on the other hand, uh, often, uh, you know, liberals, liberal voters, especially, are are kind of conditioned to um, uh, be very conservative in how they think and how they. Uh, and how they behave. So there's all kinds of films I could have given you to answer that question. I've discovered whole new vistas of cringe uh, for doing <laughs> my podcast, um, but uh, but that that would certainly be one of them. Slacker Uprising, check it out, folks. That's a good tip. I, I need a good cringe once a week, so that will be good. <laughs> yeah, fire that up. <laughs> all right, uh, everyone, that was Luke Savage, staff writer at Jacobin Magazine, contributor contributor to the Atlantic, the Guardian and other places. Uh Luke, any any last thoughts or anything you want to plug other than Michael and me? Michael and <laughs> Michael, us. Sorry, Michael sorry, us, sorry. Actually. Yeah. It's okay. A lot of people make that mistake. Um uh and yeah, the podcast hasn't been about Michael Moore for ages, so I yeah. it's but we're we're kind of stuck with the name now. Um I yeah, check out the podcast. We have a Patreon. Um you can find it on the Jacobin Radio feed, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And, uh, yeah, check me out on Twitter, uh, at Luke W. Savage. Uh, but this was a real pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Thanks, Luke. Luke. Cheers. Nope. That was fun. Yeah. Uh, Paul, any, any movies about American liberalism that come to mind? Well, I do have to make a sports analogy. I feel like every show I make <laughs> some, like, really dumb sports analogy that doesn't really apply. But, you know, like Take how... This kind of reminded me of the Harlem Globetrotters. You know how they always play the same team and that team loses every time? So, like, I kind of felt like I was thinking about that when talking about liberals. The perpetual losers. Yeah. You know, like, they know they're going to lose every time and they still do it. Um, And we get some sort of, like, morbid entertainment out of watching it. Um, Yeah. I'll have to write something, you know. People are clamoring for this content. Yes, stay tuned for Paul's film criticism coming to a Jacobin magazine near you. Um, But on the subject of the opposite of of losing, which, or actually, mm, this was not a smooth transition, actually. But uh, Paul, I know before we call it a night, you had something that you wanted to bring up about something that's happening on the other side of the Atlantic. That's right. That's right. We're going to be talking about British politics, I think, for the first time on this show. Yeah. Uh, but what have you got? You know, we did that one episode talking about Afghanistan, and now all of a sudden we think we can talk about every right. part of the world. <laughs> um, but no, there's been, I think, a significant development in the labor movement in the United Kingdom. Um, So members of the union called Unite elected Sharon Graham as the new general secretary of the union. And Unite is the second largest trade union in the UK. So it has 1.4 million members across construction, manufacturing, transport, logistics, and other sectors. And so there were three candidates in this race. And in some ways, Graham was the least likely to win. And many analysts kind of saw this campaign in this union as a proxy war for battles inside the Labour Party. So uh, Graham focused her campaign on being about the members instead and the bread and butter of what a union should be doing. And so there were some within the left and outside the union, inside and outside the union, that backed Steve Turner, who was the favorite candidate of the outgoing leader of Unite, Len McCluskey. So why this matters is McCluskey was a staunch ally of Jeremy Corbyn. 
So he was firmly in Corbin's corner during the leadership contest in 2016. Um, he widely has criticized the purges of the left wing that's the current Labor Party leader, Kira Starmer, is uh, carrying out. So it was kind of expected that if Steve Turner was uh, McCluskey's successor, he would also be a major ally of the left wing of the Labor Party. But Graham, uh, she focused on less uh, broader political fights. So her slogan was Westminster versus the workplace. And she was saying that for too long, the focus of the union has been on the Labor Party and not enough about actually organizing new members. So let's listen to her explain uh, this perspective in one of her campaign videos. Our power doesn't come from Westminster. When British Airways announced plans to fire and rehire 36,000 workers, the politicians failed. It was workers who won that dispute. And when it's time to take on companies like Amazon, the PM won't stand up to Jeff Bezos. We will. Our power is rooted in the workplace. That's how we win. When workers first stood on the picket lines, we didn't have Westminster on our side. We just had each other. We still have each other. My name is Sharon Graham, and I'm running for General Secretary of Unite the Union. We now face an historic moment. We can keep depending on the politics while bosses pick our pockets, or we can come together in the workplace and stop them. When we do that, we can build the power to drive the politics instead of politicians attempting to drive our union. So it seems that Sharon Graham was able to win by taking her message directly to rank and file members. Max O'Donnell Savage, who's a workplace rep with Unite, wrote about the campaign in Tribune magazine. And he said, buy-in from active membership, taking ownership of the campaign was the only way Sharon could win this election. Sharon didn't have Murdoch support like Coyne, nor did she have the incumbent and senior Unite staffers backing her like Turner. Sharon's win was the result of lay members leading at every level of the campaign. They were able to present a clear vision for left-wing change, bringing about a breadth of support that no other candidate could match. Savage went on to explain why her message resonated with others like himself in the union, saying, The truth for many members and workplace reps such as myself is that we feel there hasn't been a strong enough commitment to build power from the bottom up. There is a need to give workplaces right across the board the support to have a fighting chance against ruthless bosses. From building the membership density in workplaces to accessing resources, they need to run successful campaigns. Graham staged her first walkout at the age of 17 and built a reputation within the union for being a very skilled negotiator and campaign strategist. She promises to invest more in shop steward infrastructure to beef up bargaining committees across the union. She also advocates for Unite to take on more ambitious organizing projects against corporate giants like Amazon. But there is not agreement throughout the left that Graham's victory is a good thing. After all, some think it would, be, would have been better to have a firm ally of the Corbyn wing of the party as the head of a major labor union. Some fear that Graham will abandon the labor party and leave the left wing even more defenseless against attacks from the labor right. Just like labor unions in the United States and the Democratic Party, Unions in the UK are heavy financial contributors to the Labour Party, and in the UK they actually have a little bit more of a role of shaping appointments and policy. But it seems highly unlikely that under Graham, Unite will stop giving to the Labour Party altogether. But Graham has said that there will no longer be blank checks for the party, meaning candidates will actually have to show and prove that they are allies of the union if they want their support. And more broadly, I think her message is that unions cannot rely on the Labor Party for their success. And this issue and part of why I'm talking about it is I think it comes up a lot in U.S. politics. And, you know, first, to be clear, the Democratic Party, 
even with all its flaws and all the things we just talked about with Luke Savage, is still by far better to unions than the Republicans. And during the 2020 presidential election, I thought it was very important for people to vote for Biden just on the issue of the National Labor Relations Board alone. Um, And often, though, leftists in the labor movement, like myself, have been frustrated with how much it seems like unions rely on the Democratic Party to improve their fortunes. Um, You know, literally since Jimmy Carter, labor has campaigned hard for Democrats in the hope of labor law reform, and it still has not happened. But even if we did get our dream candidates elected, ultimately it's going to take the organizing of the labor movement itself to get the job done. Let's take the example of Bernie Sanders. Now, I was very active both at the local and the national level with Labor for Bernie. And part of what we try to do in that group is get labor unions at the local and national level to endorse Bernie. So clearly, I think it's important for unions to back the right candidates and to be involved politically. But even if we got Bernie elected, unions would still have to focus very hard on how to organize new members against corporate giants like Amazon if we're going to revive the labor movement. And, you know, the elected officials and policy have a role to play. But the focus um, should still be developing our capacity as a movement to organize. And going back to the UK, the situation at the electoral level is pretty bad right now. The centrists and the Labour Party have the upper hand and are ruthlessly attacking the left wing. By no means do I think this is permanent and it's inevitably going to stay this way. But given this context, I think it makes sense that a union leader might want to focus more on developing its own infrastructure and power for now. Except maybe in exceptional circumstances, if politicians are going to give unions what they want, it's usually because the labor movement is strong enough to force them to do it. And so in the United States, yes, unions should still be endorsing Democrats over Republicans in close races. Yes, they should give money where it makes sense. Uh, When exceptionally pro-labor candidates come along, of course, they should give them the whole heart of support. And generally, I'd like to see more unions develop political programs where they're running their own members for office. But also, you know, in this moment, maybe it makes sense to give more money to training shop stewards or internal political education programs or new organizing initiatives. We should always remember that whatever gains labor makes in the electoral realm, they will be a reflection of the power we've already built in workplace and society. So, Jen, um, not sure your thoughts on this, but, you know, even though it's about the UK, I think you know, we deal with this question a lot in the U.S., like how much should unions focus on electoral politics on a Democratic Party or how much should they Mm -hmm. be focusing in-house and developing their own unions? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So two thoughts. Number one is I, of course, thought immediately of Jane McAlevey's distinction between mobilizing, organizing and advocacy. Um, I know that we've talked about the distinction between mobilizing, which is energizing and bringing your base together for some sort of action versus organizing, which is trying to actively expand your base. Um, But Jane also talks about advocacy, which is what we see a lot of unions uh, here in the U.S. doing, uh, which is, you know, the the unions that, um, I suppose, endorse Democrats. Um, Like you said, I think that that is the right thing to do. But advocacy is still, you know, the legal and kind of lobbying arm of labor rather than the actual organizing part. So, you know, 
For the UK context, I agree with you. I think that given where the capital L Labour Party is right now, it makes sense to kind of return to organizing or to uh, start shifting some of the energy and attention there, as opposed to uh, pouring everything into the kind of advocacy arm, I guess. Um, and then, you know, to bring it back to the US, because of course we have to, um, I, I think that, I think that, you know, like you were saying, I, I think that it is correct and good that unions continue to endorse Democrats and continue to give money to Democrats. You know, as you said, Democrats are still better than Republicans in 99.9% of the cases and the elections that come up. That said, I, I think that if we look to the 2016 election where you saw, you know, tons of major unions uh, endorse Hillary Clinton in the general, but then there was some, what was it? You Maybe you remember some shocking statistic, like o- over half of union households voted for Trump. Like, I don't, you know, I don't bring that up to say that like, oh, like the, you know, union members took a reactionary turn. That's actually not what I believe. I obviously believe that the Democratic Party and especially Hillary Clinton was just so completely out of touch for that particular election that, you know, some union members decided to roll the dice elsewhere. Um, but that's all to say that, you know, union leadership can continue to endorse Democrats and continue to sort of pour advocacy funds and resources into trying to get Democrats to win. Uh, but that doesn't always mean that the rank and file is going to be there. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I definitely can't speak for the, what the rank and file of United is thinking, but, you know, probably, you know, the average worker in Unite is not following the battles in the Labor Party between the left and right very closely. And I think, you know, there might be just general sense of like, why are we focusing so much on parliamentary politics? And that probably is why her message maybe was refreshing and resonated. And just to your point about, you know, the high number of union households that voted for Trump, and I think this is part of the danger is that if there's going to be like totally mindless cheerleading by labor leadership for Democrats, like you risk being very out of step with your members. And, you know, this is this, I mean, think about right to work, for example. Um, They kind of prey on this thing of like, well, our union's just wasting money given to Democrats. And that's why you should, you know, choose not to pay dues and blah, blah, blah. Again, obviously, I don't agree with that mindset. But I think like it's playing on this thing of like, well, the unions are just funneling money to the Democrats. It has nothing to do with you as a member. Um, You know, suddenly it, it creates some fertile ground to attack labor on that point. And, you know, and I think it's also about what do we think is going to revive this left movement? So I think in the UK, um, there's, of course, many differences, but they're in a similar period to us where, you know, it's the end of the Corbyn campaign, like the Bernie campaign has ended. And it's kind of like, where do we go from here? And part of that question is rebuilding the labor movement, even if there's not an immediate electoral return on that investment to use a Mm -hmm. bad capitalist analogy. But, (laughs) you know, like that is part of the project. And I think what was so interesting about Bernie, so many of us, including me, we were always saying that, well, you know, electoral politics is a reflection of social power. It can't stimulate it. And Bernie kind of proved us wrong in a way in flipping that script. But I do think like, you know, it's kind of, we've reached the end of that cycle. And it still is clear that like, as far as that went, and as far as Corbyn went in the UK, like, if we don't rebuild the labor movement, our fortunes are still going to be, you know, not in a good place. And, you know, it, the UK, you know, it's not the same as us. Their union density is still around 23%. And to put that in perspective, mm-hmm. in the US right now, it's about 10%. Um, 
Um, but the UK, just like us, has been experiencing a very steep decline in union density. And they feel, again, 24% sounds incredible to us, unfortunately, but they're, they feel they're on the ropes too. And I think they're dealing with this question. And Sharon Graham is saying, like, we need to focus on how to expand as a labor movement. Um, mm-hmm. That should be our primary focus at this moment. I feel like they still have a chance to right the ship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, again, it's Let's like hope. I would absolutely love to be sitting at 23%. <laughs> right, um, right, at 24% but, union density. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I totally hear you. And actually, you know, just to go off of that, I think that it's really incredible that Unite is the largest union in in um, the UK and is also a powerful left-wing force. And as you pointed out, is made up of, you know, um, construction, logistics, um, what we might call blue collar workers, right? Uh, There just isn't anything like that that exists here in the US, I don't think. Like I wouldn't even really count the AFL-CIO. They're great for other reasons, but I don't see them as uh, the type of political left-wing operative that Unite seems to play. I don't see them playing the same role that Unite seems to play in the UK. And this is like super anecdotal, but I remember like, I don't know, a few years ago, I was watching like some like, makeup video on youtube i swear this is going somewhere right, and right. the 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 makeup artist who uh is british um you know somebody had asked her like uh like oh who who did you vote for in the last election and she said i voted labor because i'm working class hmm. and i just feel like uh like you can still say that in the uk although you're right the class dealignment is happening there too labor obviously has undergone some pretty serious shocks over the last, you know, two, three, however many years. Um, But you can still say that in the UK and it makes sense. And there just isn't anything like that here. I think here that line would be like, I'm voting Democrat because I make under 500,000 a year. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And like, I live in San Francisco or whatever. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And something interesting, I mean, I just found like in doing the research for this segment, like just a big difference in our political cultures is like this election was like a big deal throughout the UK. Mm -hmm. Like the major news channels were covering it. You know, like, for example, there's a big election in the Teamsters Union coming up um, for national leadership. That's actually is a very big deal. But like, I highly doubt you're going to see much coverage of it in any mainstream media. But again, it just kind of just shows a different position of unions in in the uk as compared to here is that that this is a major political story that people if you're paying attention to politics you're paying attention to this internal union election and like that just is not going to be happening here you know oh yeah yeah i mean even even in the wake of richard trumka's death and kind of speculation about who might take over the afl cio which you know on a prior show we had kind of talked about that and uh, some people had been sort of rumbling about who might take over even before Richard Trumka passed away. Um, but the point is that those were just labor nerds, <laughs> right. like leftists and labor nerds. And like, I don't think anybody, you know, in the like wider mainstream media, like cared at all. Right. And even, and again, just the thought that Unite um, actually has such a big influence in the labor party that there is this fear that under Sharon Graham, they won't have that same influence Again, kind of incredible to think about that, like, again, let's say they were worried that if the teams has elected someone, you know, we wouldn't have the same huge level of influence among Biden, which, you know, which we just don't now. Um, But again, Mm -hmm. it just shows like they are a major player and like that fear, although I kind of disagree with it, I don't think it's coming out of nowhere. The fact is that Unite still has has a high degree of ability to set policy and influence the direction of the party. 
I guess I now have an off-the-cuff labor poll question oh, yeah. for you. Love those. And I'm, I'm just going to hit you with it. Uh, if you want to defer it to the next episode, that's fine too. But you, you mentioned this upcoming Teamster election. Uh, what should we on the left be watching for? Why, why is it so important? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. And this is actually something I've been thinking about covering for a while. Um, well, you know, I think many people probably know the name Jimmy Hoffa, right? He was president of the Teamsters Union for a long time. Um, so his son, um, also named James Hoffa, is the current president of the union. He has been for a while now. I Don't quote me, but, you know, the last 10 or 15 years. Um, so he is stepping down. So really, this is like the end of the Hoffa era. And there, you know, there is a reform slate that is um, going to be on the ballot for election. And it is useful going into some of the history here. You know, there is a caucus that exists within the Teamsters called Teamsters for a Democratic Union that for a very long time, since the 1970s, has been seeking to reform the union, to kick out corruption, to make it more democratic and powerful. And, you know, they played a big role, actually, in kicking out corruption in the union and the influence of the mafia. That was, uh, you know... I think the story usually goes that it was the government that did that, but that was the result of rank and file activists pushing for certain reforms. And in the 1990s, they ran a slate that won national leadership of the Teamsters Union. So throughout, uh, starting in 1991, Ron Carey was the president of the Teamsters. And that was significant because basically the last very successful nationwide private sector strike was in 1997 when the Teamsters struck UPS. Um, and that was under the leadership of Ron Carey. I have a hard time believing that strike would have happened and would have been successful if it was under the old guard leadership. Um, it's kind of a long winding story of how that um, slate got out of power. But we're now at a moment again where there is a reform slate on the table. Um, it is a little complicated. It includes some people from the older leadership and, and some of the newer reformers. But, you know, if they win, um, I think you'll see changes in the union and they actually are kind of the front runners to win this race. And this is setting up, I think, a confrontation with UPS in 2023. And for some more background, you know, in 2019, and, you know, this is something I talk a lot about with Richard Hooker, who's been on the show um, uh, a few times now. Back in 2019, um, in negotiations with the UPS, the members of the Teamsters nationally voted down a contract agreement. They said, no, we want you to go back to the table and negotiate something better. And the leadership essentially forced the contract down the member's throat. Um, they used kind of a loophole in the bylaws to do that. So there's a lot of anger about that. And that's part of what's uh, fueling this reform movement. And I think if the reformers win, um, they're going to take on UPS in a different way. Of course, we can't sit this far out and say that they're going to strike. Um, but I think they're going to be more confrontational. I think especially what's happened since COVID, UPS has made a disgusting amount of profits um, over COVID. And I think there really is going to be a sense of like, we are going to get what we deserve in this next contract fight, which I think will be in 2023. Um, so I think that could be a flashpoint. And I think even when thinking about organizing um, Amazon, I think what is needed is uh, a big victory in a similar sector, but maybe a different company. And I think if there is a very successful strike at UPS, um, I think that could galvanize Amazon workers to look at that and say, we want what they have. Um, we want to you know, focus on building a union. So I think those are kind of the stakes coming up in this Teamster election. Um, the ballots, I think, go out in September or October. So um, fairly soon we'll know the result. But I think it could be a very exciting development in the labor movement. 
If you're a Teamster, check out your mail. Yeah, those ballots should be coming out. (laughs) All right. um, Well, uh, just a brief reminder that we will be airing at 3 p.m. next Tuesday. We will be having on Noam Chomsky, so do not miss this. Yes, you might also see that there is a special surprise guest host who you haven't seen in a while. I think that's just you, Paul. (laughs) You know you're on next week. Oh, okay. Cool, cool. (laughs) Um, Don't miss that. Uh, Noam Chomsky is going to be talking about American empire after 9-11 and the war on terror. So that's obviously going to be a great conversation. Um, And again, just another reminder that if you have any labor-related questions for Labor Paul, um, please pop those in the chat or in the comments, and Paul will try to get to them next time. I saw some come. I think two came through today in the live chat. So looking forward to answering those. Keep them coming. Paul has seen them. He's taking note. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, uh, I thought that was a great, great spur of the moment uh, blast of liberalism Mm -hmm. and a little bit of British politics. Um, And we will see you all next week at 3 p.m. All right. Good night.